0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You've met him here before.
1: During his years as a wonderkin baseball executive, Theo Epstein brought World Series championships to the title starved Boston Red Sox and My Chicago Cubs, using data analytics to guide every aspect of the game and give his teams an edge. The result was a winning brand of baseball others emulated, but at the same time, longer games, less spontaneity, and lengthy periods of inaction that frustrated many fans. Now a consultant to Major League Baseball, Epstein's used his same passion for the game and data analytics to reverse engineer some of his own innovations, shaping rules changes he hopes will pump renewed life into the old national pastime. On opening day, here's my conversation with Theo Epstein. Theo Epstein, it's great to see you again, my friend. I uh last time we got together, you were uh you were running the Cubs and we talked a lot about your, you know, your life and your development and your relationship to baseball. I just want to go back to that for one second before we get into these rules changes that you are the architect of that is all the talk of baseball as we're about to throw out the first pitch of the season. I thought back to our conversation and I thought back to your discussion of micro league baseball (laughs) the computer game that you and your brother played when you were a kid because it sort of involved data and it seems to me that you had two things going when you were a kid you grew up a mile from fenway and uh, you loved baseball and then you also sort of fell in love with data around baseball but talk to me a little bit about your relationship to the two of those
2: yeah. Well, first of all, it's great to see you again. And uh, I'm not the architect of these rules. I'm I'm part of a team that uh that's involved in, in helping shape them and implement them. And it's been it's been great to be to be part of that team and have a seat
1: at the table. You still have your leadership chops, I see. <laughs> no, all well, this
2: in this case it's
1: true. Um, <laughs> and uh yeah, you know, I was
2: really lucky growing up a mile from Fenway Park and would figure out how to had to sneak into games late when they stopped taking tickets and, um, had this lifelong, um, love of the games were cemented by, um, you know, the childhood love of the Red Sox. Um, and, and yeah, I got, I got, uh, really interested in, in the data side of baseball as well, but it didn't, it didn't sort of dominate the, the, the overall affection for the game, playing it, watching it, um, you know the smells, the sounds, um, mm-hmm. but but there was an awareness of the math that would go on um, sort of simultaneously. I think it started with reading Bill James baseball abstracts. Uh-huh. He, was, he was writing these incredible almanacs every year in the eighties that would explain all these hidden truths of the game. And and you know Sandy Alderson was reading them at the same time and started to to put them in in into action to the A's and then his yeah Moneyball. Yeah, his disciple Billy Bean, you know, then mm-hmm. took it to another level, and, and then it, it be, was promulgated widely, and, and it took over the whole industry. So, yeah, I was reading Bill James and sort of thinking along as I would watch, as I would play, and then micro league baseball was was uh, a great computer simulation at the time where you, you could you could play games, you could simulate whole seasons, and see how how um, the math would manifest over you know over over the course of a season, how how. Individual players and, and their skills could could impact the team as a whole, so yeah it was you know, it was great growing up with with a love of the game and then an awareness of the math and then I got to to really cement my perspective on the game, working for the padres right right out of college I had uh, my my cubicle was literally uh, right between the scouting director and statistical analyst and and, and I was able to I was able to sort of mesh their viewpoints in the world and, and come up with my own perspective, trying to marry the subjective side and the objective side.
1: And of course, that became so integral to what you were doing uh, in running teams. You were a prodigy uh, in sports management and baseball uh, management. You led the uh, Red Sox to their first uh, World Series in what, 86 years? Is that yeah, World Series victory? Yeah, back in 2004. And then came out and thankfully did that for the Cubs, I say, as a Chicagoan. But I remember a spring training when you and I got uh, got together. I think it may have been in 2016. And I remember one thing stuck in my head. You told me that there's so much about baseball we don't know. And if we can just find out, you know, if I can discover another 1% of that, that gives us an edge. And I remember you showing me your IV system, your computer system that you put together for the Cubs that uh, helped you unlock some of these things. But the reason I raise all of this is how much does the unlocking of these mysteries, it helped you gain as a team, how much did these things in any way detract from the game? Using data to position players and shifts and things that may have contributed to some of the factors you're trying to correct against now.
2: Yeah, it's a great irony, you know, because these these insights, these optimizations that were driven, you know, in large part by front offices and and by people like me, but but also, you know, players were really interested in in optimizing their performance as well. It was sort of this whole push in the industry because of um our access to data and our understanding of data and a lot of tech, technological innovations where we were just looking to optimize, um, the, the, way, the way players were used on the field, optimize strategies, um, optimize positioning, optimize trading. And it worked, uh, in, in the sense of, you know, squeezing out, uh, a few more wins, squeezing out some better performances. A lot of teams, um, got better and, and, and won championships, um, you know, in part because of, of these optimizations. But what it didn't optimize at all was the aesthetic value of the game and the enter- entertainment value of the game and, and the way the game flowed on the field and the rhythm yeah. of the game and the way it and, and maybe
1: it took some of the spontaneity of the game away. I think so.
2: You know, I think the game the game is about the players and it's for the fans. And... When you have that much information being processed, that much information sort of being delivered from on high, it can take away the freedom of the players. You know, I think what, one good example you brought it up earlier is deep defensive positioning, right? Where it became clear to front offices that most ground balls were, were hit to the pull side based on who was pitching and who was hitting and, and count counting game situations, you could come up with an optimal defensive positioning in the infield to prevent balls from getting through. So you saw this extreme shift. The Rays were the first team to popularize it, and baseball is very much a copycat industry, so it caught on. And
1: You had a team of, and every team does now, but you had a team of uh, analytics people, and one of them was just focused on this, on uh, positioning based on data analytics, uh, where to shift, when to shift. And so on. I mean, it became an art form.
2: Yeah, and coming up with an algorithm that and a model that could take all the inputs and spit out the perfect positioning to to turn these balls in play into outs. And so that that's an example of an optimization that that helps you win. Uh, however, what it leads to, all these hard hit balls that for our for the lifetime of 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 of, of any fan. You recognize instantly off the bat as a base hit, and now all of a sudden, instead of being a base hit, they were a very boring, uh, you know, one hopper right at a third baseman who is now positioned in short right field who would just scoop it up and and, and throw the batter out. So, you know, it, it made the game less relatable to fans, uh, It created less action for fans because balls weren't getting through the... League batting average dipped all the way to 243, which was last year, which was the lowest all-time uh, among non-pitchers batting. Um, and instead, what was taken away, as, as, as you mentioned earlier, was was the, the role of the player. His instincts, his baseball IQ to position himself, uh, his spontaneity and freedom to, to get a great break— um, Run after the ball athletically, leave his feet, diving, make a great play, pop up and throw the runner out in a bang bang play. And so, if you, you know, yes, the game was optimized. That that ball was very efficiently turned into an out and, and and a base hit, and maybe a run was prevented, and maybe the team won because of that. But ask any fan, like, would would you rather see a game decided because your front office had the perfect algorithm, and therefore? had their defender standing in exactly the right place for a very boring ground ball to be hit right, right to that fielder? Or would you rather see the game decided by whether your second baseman you know, can, can get a great break, make an unbelievable diving play with the game on the line, and, and throw the runner out? Of course, it's more entertaining to see the player make the play.
1: Not to mention, I mean, I think you've noted uh, that, uh, I mean, the result of this is... That you go, you can go minutes and minutes and minutes without seeing anything actually happen of consequence yeah. in a game. And you know there are a lot of kids out there who would say boring. Yeah, which is one of the problems, isn't it? I mean, we live. I, I, I mentioned you and your computer game. You were sort of, you're sort of a bridge between generations. But you've got young kids, uh, and they've grown up with video games. They've grown up with. Our whole society is now uh, sort of turbocharged by technology. So we expect, you, you talk about bang, bang plays, we, we live bang, bang lives. And <laughs> yeah. so certainly these kids do. That puts baseball in jeopardy.
2: You're right. Yeah, the the optimizations led to fewer and fewer balls in play, which led to less and less action. Um we got to a point where, on average, a fan had to wait more than four minutes simply to see a ball put in play. So more more than four minutes between balls in play, and as, as you mentioned, that amount of patience um, does not necessarily exist um, in in Gen Z. The, the way the game was evolving uh, unintentionally was yeah. antithetical to the sensibilities of, of the next generation, and, and our numbers. Uh, as an industry began to suffer a little bit with with their younger fans, the average age of of a World Series viewer is 56 years old. Yeah, you know, so so I think I think, you know, the commissioner smartly realized that the game was changing anyway. And therefore it, it made a lot of sense to lean in and be intentional about how it was changing. If the game was going to evolve and change, well there were things we could control, there were guidelines we could couldn't put in place through the rules, through equipment changes, through being thoughtful that would make the game change in a way that was more exciting, that had more action, that had more athleticism on display, that had more balls in play, and that would be appealing to, you know, Pure baseball fans, older baseball fans, those who, who love the tradition of the game, it would still be recognizable. In fact, the game would be restored in a lot of ways to the aesthetic that we were used to, you know, for generation yeah. after generation. But it would also be more entertaining and more action-packed and, and appeal to the younger generation as well. So if these rule changes are successful, um, that'll be what, uh, what we accomplished.
1: It's interesting to me because you applied, I mean, you know the business that I came out of. I don't like to think of it as a business. Probably you don't like to think of yours as a business but because it's a passion. But um, but you did a lot of research, uh, market research, research, uh, I presume, polling and focus groups. What did you learn?
2: Yeah, so this, this whole project started with, with Major League Baseball, reaching out to many different constituencies, uh, but most importantly, the fans, um, to find out... Um, you know, what their preferences were, what they liked, what they didn't like. You know, the, another way to think of this project is, is this an effort to just get closer to the very best version of baseball. Like we all love the game. It, it's the greatest game in the world. Um, but it had been changing in a way that, that none of us uh, would have, would have drawn up or none of us would have intended. And so. There was, there were focus groups, there were surveys, there were polls. Um, you know, really high volume. We got a tremendous amount of data, and what fans told us. Of course, everyone, everyone's best version of baseball is a little bit different based on when you grew up and where you grew up and what your favorite team was when you were 12 years old. And what, but there were a lot of commonalities, and the consensus was around uh, more action, more athleticism faster pace more balls in play um, less dead time um, less standing around less inaction and so and and if you look at you know the the actual events in a game that fans like the most are things like stolen bases uh, base hits doubles triples great defensive plays the things that fans like the least uh, are pitching changes mound visits and anything that involves dead time and standing around without action so that that was something that we could really um, rally around because it gave a clear mandate to to improve the pace, to create more action, and to allow the players to show more of their athleticism.
1: Just coincidentally, I just watched this um, Willie Mays documentary. I don't know if you watched it yes, on Netflix. Yeah. Willie yeah. was my favorite player when I was a kid, and you know, you watch him run the bases or steal bases, and you realize, you know, we think of Jackie Robinson, a guy who stole, I don't know what, stole home, uh, what, six times, or I don't know what the number was. But those were the kind of moments, iconic moments, uh, that we remember. And they became less and less common.
2: Yeah, a lot of bass-running, uh, daring has been essentially engineered out of the game because of the math of baseball that you know in a, in a certain run environment like we have now with pitching the the, the way it is now the, the the most effective way to score runs uh, involves a lot of a trade off of of you know going for home runs and accepting the strikeouts that come along with it that sort of home run strikeout trade off because it's really hard to string three base hits together it's really hard to make to get on base and make that trip around the bases and because of that um stolen bases have been at generational lows we're we're averaging only 1.3 stolen base attempts per game both teams combined because the calculus just doesn't add up but that's something that we can control and it's a good example of the rule changes like for example you know one way to encourage more stolen base activity more willie mays jackie robinson type Daring on the bases would be, well, if we change the calculus a little bit, the geometry of the game and push the bases closer together, well, that would encourage more running and more daring on the bases. But that's not something we were prepared to do because 90 feet between bases is one of the sacred numbers of the game came down to us from uh, you know from yes. on high. It's like 60 feet, six inches. We wouldn't necessarily want to mess with that as a sacred number. But then there was this great idea we could accomplish the same thing. Uh, perhaps simply by making the bases a little bit bigger, and so I asked all thirty major league managers a few off seasons ago how big a, a major league base was, and not a single manager correctly guessed that a, a base was fifteen inches square. And so that was sort of our our permission uh, to experiment a little bit with with a bigger base in order to to make the distance between bases a little bit smaller and encouraging the base running. And, and you're right, we tested it. It was Commissioner Manfred, um, who, who really pushed us to say, look, we can, we can consider changes as long as they have the, the desired result, but we have to make sure that we avoid unintended consequences. We have to make sure that, that they have the desired impact. We have to make sure they're safe for players. We have to make sure that they allow the game to be played the right way, that, that, that players can yeah, these are the best players in the world. They have to be able to adjust and perform at the highest level, even with these role changes. So, over the course of several minor league seasons, 8,000 games in total of experimentation, uh, we, we put on trial things like slightly bigger bases and to see if it would have the desired effect. And it did. You know, stolen base attempts went up, uh, stolen base success rate went up. Uh, player injuries around the bases actually went down because the bigger bases gives a little bit more real estate for base runners and, and fielders to to navigate their way safely around tag plays. So uh, you know we tested it out throughout the minor leagues. That's one example of the rule changes that that now will be in in baseball for 2023. And already in spring training with the bigger bases, we're seeing stolen base action up to 2.4. Stolen base attempts per game. Up so from like la-
1: double, basically. Yeah,
2: well, up from last year's spring training by 50%. So it was mm-hmm. 1.6 at this point last year in spring training. But yeah, we expect a significant increase in the regular season. Success rate is up from 71% to 80%, which will further encourage managers to give their players the green light and let them show show their athleticism and, and, and skills and daring on the bases. Which, again, just leads back to giving fans more of what they like more action, more athleticism on the bases, and less of what they don't like: standing around, station to station baseball, three true outcome, strikeout, walks, and homers only baseball. So, uh, you know, it's a small thing. You know, there was a lot of laughter about about the bigger bases when when we announced them, and they do look a little funny at first. You know, I think people compared them to extra large pizza boxes, which uh, that's also a good good connection. Who doesn't like an extra large pizza? But yeah, uh,
1: probably relates to sitting around. And watching a baseball game. If you sit around <laughs> for a few hours watching a baseball game, you, you're probably familiar with a large pizza box. Exactly.
2: Well. But it's an example of how a really small change on something that's hopefully subtle enough where people don't even notice. You know, no one's trying to reinvent the game. We're trying to really restore the game and, and, and highlight and emphasize and draw out the best parts of the game.
1: We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day, hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trayvel Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
1: And now, back to the show. You spent a couple of years visiting minor league parks and collecting data. You had to present sort of empirical evidence uh, that these things could actually work.
2: Yeah. There's a a team uh, at Major League Baseball, of of which I'm a part. um, Morgan Sword, uh, who is the Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations and Reed McPhail and Joe Martinez and I and many others, um, yeah, you know, were in charge of implementing these rule changes. And act, there were so many people who contributed because the minor league players, you know, the, the, they're the ones who had to to adjust first to these rule changes. And you know, and some didn't make it. We tried many things.
1: Talk about a few that didn't make it. What were ones that failed?
2: Yeah. So one example of one that I wouldn't say completely failed, but it was sort of sent sent back to the drawing board was. Uh, uh, tinkering with with the mound distance, you know, the, the most important geometry on the field, the 60 feet, 6 inches uh, between the pitching rubber and home plate. You know, strikeouts are up so much in the modern game because pitchers have um, uh, better weaponized data and technology to their advantage and, and have done a great job of just imp- creating unhittable stuff so that they're missing so many bats. The league strikeout rate is now over 23% of the league strikeout rate. So the average major league pitcher strikes out more hitters than Bob Gibson did yeah, on who average. Yeah, who
1: you know? was one of the truly great strikeout pitchers of all time. Right. This isn't the first time that baseball has tinkered with its rules, and Bob Gibson was very much related to this back in 1968. He was so lethal as a pitcher. I, I think his earned run average was uh, a little over a 1% a run a game which was unheard of 1.12, 1.12 or something yeah yeah and uh you'll remember you won't remember but you know because you're a student of red sox history that carly ostremski won the batting title in the american league that year with a 301 batting average was the lowest in a century or something and a triple crown and a triple crown yes so major league baseball lowered the pitcher's mound By 10 inches in that year. They did something else. They shrunk Uh,
2: the strike zone as well at the same time. Exactly.
1: Those were fairly major rules changes. Uh, Did you study the reaction to those? Were you aware of how people embraced those back in the day?
2: Um, We did. We did study it. And and one thing we, we actually took away um from the changes that year was how difficult it can be to assess the impact of any one individual change when you make multiple changes at the same time it didn't stop us from making uh three changes at, at the same time this year because we just felt they were so necessary but it's really hard to decide how much of the increase in offense was attributable to the to the mountain you know being lowered versus the the changes in in the strike zone and um mound height is one of the things we've been studying. To get back to your original question, yeah, you know, so we, we tested in the Atlantic League moving the, the mound back um, by a foot. So we went from 60 feet, six inches to 61 feet, six inches. And we ran some studies to, to make sure that we weren't jeopardizing pitcher health in so doing. And we asked for the cooperation of, of Atlantic League pitchers. And it was a difficult experiment because it was so foreign. Um, you know, these pitchers are trying to, to pitch their way back to minor league jobs and, and, and major league opportunities. The hitters, we hadn't anticipated the disruption to their timing. You know, that, 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 yes, they had more reaction time. They had more visual cues to track the baseball on the way to home plate because of the increased distance. But the adjustment period, it took so long for them to adjust to the change in timing from being a foot farther back that the strikeout rate actually went up a tick. Uh, Instead of going down. Oh, that's interesting. We realized that the best way to study the impact of mound distance would be in in a lab setting. So we're studying it now uh, more in a lab setting. There were other small changes that players just told us didn't work. And and when we took their feedback, we considered prohibiting the left-handed pitchers move to first base where they could... Lift their lead leg, sort of hesitate, and then and then and then go to first base. As long as they didn't cross that forty-five degree angle line, so sort of the Andy Pettit move. And um, we decided we were considered banning that and making lefties step off the way righties have to step off in order to throw over. And it was just it, it we didn't think it it was worth it. It sort of took a weapon away from left-handed pitchers. It it probably put them at maybe some risk because stepping off and throwing so over yeah. was so awkward for them. So yeah. we scrapped that. But the the rule changes that we got great feedback on from the fans that that the players tolerated at first and then came to enjoy that had the desired impact and that didn't lead to any unintended consequences were the ones that sort of made their way up the ladder all the way to AAA and, and, and had extensive testing, up to eight thousand games worth and that were comfortable enough to to bring to the big leagues this year, and I would say, I should say, in conjunction with, with the players, one of the best things to come out of the the last collective bargaining agreement between Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association was the creation of this uh, joint competition committee uh, for the first time, which has ownership represent, representatives as well as player rep- four player representatives and an umpire representative, and all these and it's chaired by John Stanton of the Seattle Mariners, who did a great job building collaboration. And, you know, for the first time, these all these rules were, were debated by this committee. We got player input. The rules were all improved by the player feedback that we had. And while, you know, they weren't unanimously approved by all members of the committee, the players voted against some of these rule changes. But the
1: Players Association... Uh, reject some of these or oppose some of these?
2: Yeah, they did. But I think it's important to understand that the players aren't a monolith. It's It's really hard for player representatives to embrace any rule changes because they represent pitchers as well as hitters.
1: Theoretically, pitchers would be more averse to these than hitters because the whole object is to get more balls in play, more action. Pitchers probably like a game where they are striking out more batters and have more command of the game. Is that right?
2: These rule changes aren't anti-pitcher or pro-offense. It's really more pro-action. It's sort of the shape of offense. So we don't. We, we think we might see a slight increase in overall offense from these rule changes, and that's what we've seen in spring training so far. Uh, runs per game are up a very small amount, uh, from 10.6 runs per game to 11. So less yeah. than half a run a game, but it's the shape of offense. Instead of offense coming from, you know, uh, walk, walk, three run Homer, we're, I think we're going to see a lot more offense generated by, you know, base hit stolen base base mm-hmm. hit, you know, triple and, 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 um, and that's what we're looking for. So no, it's just really hard to, to get rule changes approved, but by, by all the players, because they do impact different players, different ways.
1: You talked about the larger bases, the shift is banned. so. Talk about about that about the specific rule and and its impact, and then let's let's talk about. I think what is probably the most noticeable of them is the pitch clock. Talk through the the rules changes that you ultimately arrived at. So the bigger bases
2: we've already covered. The bases are now eighteen inches square instead of fifteen inches square, which are,
1: by the way, not terrible. I mean, I've been to five or six spring training games. It really isn't noticeable. I mean, I don't know.
2: It takes like a game, a game to get used to it. And, and 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 that's a good example of the feedback we got from players, middle infielders in the minor leagues that um, took them a game or two to get used to it. And then they actually enjoyed it, just gave them more real estate. Better for, for them.
1: As you point out, they're less likely to get hurt. Exactly. Yeah. They've injuries. got more room to touch a base and, and, and bypass the runner.
2: Fielders around the bag and, and base runners around the bag, injuries decreased uh, at least 30% at every level we tested the bigger bases. So it's, it's mm-hmm. also pro player safety. And then the shift restrictions, um, designed to, you know, mitigate the impact of, of, of what we talked about earlier with teams during these extreme defensive shifts that, that hurt the in play environment and, um, also sort of take us farther away from, from the aesthetic that we're all used to and, and also put real limits on, on player athleticism and on, on the defensive infield.
1: It also, by the way, it's just one ancillary mm-hmm. benefit is it takes time for, run, uh, for fielders to shift around the field. It does. One, one more thing that made the pace of the game a little too uh, ponderous. Exactly right.
2: So the way that this rule works is that the infielders there's a depth restriction and then there's a side to side restriction as well. So infielders, you have to have two infielders on either side of second base. So traditional third base and shortstop positioning on the left side, and second baseman and first baseman positioning on the right side, and all the infielders uh, have to start uh, no deeper than the the outer edge of, of the infielder. So in other words, the infielders can't can't line up in the outfield grass anymore, and and Uh, the combination of those rules, the, the banning of these extreme shifts, we think accomplishes a lot of things. It makes the game more relatable, um, to, to fans and restores that aesthetic that's been traditional through the history of the game. It puts the game back in, in the player's hands. Uh, They position themselves a little bit more now, instead of always being positioned by an algorithm coming down from the front office, it, it, uh. Improves the, the in play environment, especially for left handed hitters. And we've already seen that in spring training. You know, the um, ground balls are getting through at a much higher rate. The batting average on balls in play is, is up significantly. So more action that way, which is great. I think the most important thing about the shift restriction, and it's often overlooked, is it, it really brings back the premium on athleticism for defensive infielders. Because uh, when, when you can shift, infielders are bunched up and you can get away with less athletic players on the field with the shift restrictions infielders have just more room to roam they can they have to make plays at the extremities of their range infielders love the shift restrictions because it it puts them back in the middle of the action just if you know from watching a spring training game now every time a left-handed hitter comes up the second baseman is is in the middle of the action You, you you have to have an athletic second baseman who can make plays. You're gonna-
1: Let me ask you a question about that. <laughs> Just put your front office hat back on for a second. Is this going to change the way uh, the front office evaluates players? Are you going to be looking for different kinds of players because these, of the changes these rules will bring about? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think un, you know under the old rules um, and with, with extreme shifting, You could get away with someone who profiled better as maybe a third baseman or even a first baseman, perhaps. You know, someone who could had a lot of power. You know, who who could thrive in that three true outcomes: strikeout, walk, home run dynamic, and sort of force feed them into the second base position, knowing that you could make up for their lack of range through positioning and through extreme defensive shifting, and just put the second baseman in a position where. He was going to take care of those hard hit ground balls right at him and, and covered on either side. And so now as, as a GM, you know, you, you you can't force those sort of like power first, less athletic players onto your roster. You need rangy, athletic, um, maybe glove first, even, uh, infielders on, on your roster. And again, it just gets back to fan preferences where Mm -hmm. fan, fans love. Uh, Athletes—they love speed. They love balls and play. They love diving defensive plays. They don't necessarily love just the three true outcomes. So, yeah, it is. I think in general, in general, these rule changes are going to make GMs look for for more athletic, more dynamic
1: players and to put on the field. Let's get to the pitch clock. Yeah, because that is one that you notice. I don't think you know. I was sitting next to a guy at a game a couple uh, last week who uh, was like me, an old baseball fan, grew up, you know, with the game. And, you know, we traded a lot of 60s trivia and all that. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, man, I I love this. It wasn't so much about the length of the game, but the pace of the game, which is different.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. The pitch clock is designed to restore the great rhythm and flow and pace that the game had for a century, you know, before... you know, recent trends have really slowed it down and then created a lot more dead time. So I think, to me, the best way to describe the, the pitch timer is to, you know, ask fans to, to go on YouTube and, and bring up a game from their youth. You know, any yeah, yeah, I, mean, I would go back. I mean, and, I
1: remember, I mean, those games would, would breeze by because pitchers would get the ball and they would throw the ball. Yeah. Batters would get in the batting box and by and large, they would stay there. Yeah, it made a big difference.
2: I think the, it's the way the game was designed to be played. It has this really natural flow to it. It's almost like a pitch is thrown as you take a breath, and then you see the result, and then the ball's back, and the pitcher's peering again, he's ready to throw again. We had gotten to a point, especially with runners on base, where every pitch had become like a Broadway production. You know, <laughs> pitchers, when they got the ball back, instead of getting on the rubber, they'd take a walk around the mound. They'd think about what pitch they were going to get throw next. They would intentionally take extra time, smartly in order to give their body time to physically recover in order to throw another pitch at max effort, throwing as hard as they could with as much spin and movement as they could because pitching had evolved into this power display where you're trying to miss bats instead of the art of pitching that had been for a long time where you're not always throwing as hard as you can. You're changing speed. Sometimes you're pitching the contact, you're in and out, you're up and down. Um, batters were stepping out. Between every pitch, even if they hadn't swung, adjusting their batting gloves, peering off into the heavens. going When through. the
1: pitchers took too much time, the sure. batters would step out of the box because they, were, they felt the pitchers were trying to disrupt their timing.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to note, it's not players being lazy or players being selfish. Like these, the reason players took more time is because there were these improvements in a lot of fields. Like one, for example, is just the mental side of the game and understanding how important routines are. And so, of course, once you, once you recognize how important a routine is to sort of reset your focus and clear your head and, 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 and live in the moment and play with mindfulness, of course, you're going to take a little bit extra time between pitches, go through your mental routine, get ready to perform at your best. The information, um, analytics, the amount of, the amount of factors that go into, you know, what what pitch to call in what situation, what pitch to anticipate when you're a hitter in certain situations, like all that slowed the game down as well. So, in an effort to get back to the, to the natural pace and, and beautiful flow of the game of baseball, we experimented with, with a pitch timer in the minor leagues. Again, 8,000 games worth of, of experimentation and uh, brought back the results of the pitch timer, which were extraordinary. You know, when we tested it in the minor leagues, game times went down by 25 minutes. The the pace. More importantly, to your point, the the pace of the game improved. Uh, it, fans, players, scouts, umpires, uh, everyone loved the the improved pace and flow of the game. And then, remarkably, it was actually a better brand of baseball because when when you when you encourage pitchers to 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 throw more quickly. And, and hitters to stay in the box, you actually saw pitchers throw more strikes. You saw hitters swing the bat more often. You saw some shorter at bats, more balls in play. You saw defenders making better defensive plays because they were more in the game. You know, you, being from Chicago, you know, like a great recent example of a pitcher who works at a fast pace very effectively and in, in, in involving his defense in the game is like a Mark Burley. Yes. It was from the White Sox. The best way to describe what we saw with the pitch timer was like it was as if Mark Burley was pitching for both teams. You yeah, know, you'd go out there and the, the game would take you know, two hours and thirty minutes instead of three hours. You'd have more balls in play. You'd have defenders on their toes. Just a much better brand of baseball. So
1: I may be imagining this, Theo, but it, <laughs> I think back to a lot of the great pitchers that I've seen over time, and I think more of them worked fast than slow. It's like a shot clock in basketball, essentially. And by the way, that changed that game dramatically as well. It did.
2: And and I think I love the shot clock analogy because nobody goes to an NBA game and comes home and says, like, wow, that shot clock really dominated the game. You know, like it was it was it was a great game, but that shot clock or you know, I couldn't take my eyes off the shot clock. You don't even notice the shot clock is there. What you do notice is beautiful transition basketball free flowing up and down the court, players in motion, lots of transition game, up and down the court, lots of points being scored. And that that's in large part because of the shot clock. And so the same, I think, the same did hold true in the minor leagues, where after a couple of games, nobody even noticed the pitch timer. But you did notice this beautiful pace and flow to the game at a better brand of baseball. And and the players adjusted too. And that's the same thing we're seeing in in spring training right now is the first couple of weeks of the pitch timer experiment in the minor leagues, we we averaged close to two violations per game.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
0: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
1: And now back to the show. If a pitcher uh, doesn't pitch within the fifteen or twenty-second time frame, it's an automatic uh, ball. If a batter isn't in place within eight seconds of the clock, in other words, if he has to be in place by eight seconds mm-hmm. to go on the clock, and then that would be a strike. Automatic strike, yeah. An automatic strike. So this this actually created a controversy. You're old Red Sox. In, I think, maybe their first or second game. It was.
2: Murphy's Law, being what it is, it was uh, the first full day of spring training games, yeah.
1: And they played uh, the Braves, and it was a tie game in the ninth inning. I think the Braves had the bases loaded, and their player was up, and I think it was a full count. (laughs) and he got hit with the penalty strike three game ends in a tie everyone was outraged did that cause you to think hey maybe we ought to tweak that
2: i don't know if everyone was outraged i would classify it more as Twitter outrage, which is the exact type of thing, <laughs> the exact exactly noise right. that you have to ignore when, when you know you have <laughs> you know a, a good idea that you just need to execute and see through. But no, that's what spring training is for. And so we want to make sure we give the players time to adjust to the rules if if necessary. Umpires too, right? Umpires need to, they're doing a fantastic job but they need to learn and execute the rules. And there, there are myriad situations that can come up on a field during a game that are unique that aren't necessarily, you know um, uh, anticipated uh, all the time when you're just sitting there reading the rules. But the great thing is that what we're seeing in spring training so far is tracking almost exactly with what we saw in the minor leagues, which is these rules are, the players are capable of adjusting to these rules in a span of about three to four weeks. So in the minor leagues, when we first rolled rolled out the pitch timer, there were, you know, close to two violations per game, both teams combined. And after it it went down each week until we got to the point of after four weeks, there was on average half a violation per game, both teams combined. So your favorite team, if you're watching them every single night, once every four games, your favorite team would have a violation where an automatic ball or an automatic strike was, was levied against them. And so far in spring training, the first week of games, we averaged two violations per game. The next week, it was down to 1.5. The third week, it was down to one violation per game. And we think that by the time we're done with spring training and we get into the season, we're going to be right down around half a violation per game as well. And again, no one comes to see the violations. We don't want the games decided by violations, but the timer... And the violations will fade into the background over time as players adjust over the course of three to four weeks. And you're left with this great outcome. You have spring training games now are down 25 minutes from last year. The average game is being played in two hours and 36 minutes. Runs per game are up from 10.6 to 11. Average is up 259 to 262. On base is up from 332 to 344. Strikeouts are down. So again, it's a better pace Shorter games, better brand of baseball, and the players and umpires are doing a great job of adjusting.
1: There's one other rule change that we should mention because it relates to the stolen bases as well as to pace, and that is the number of times that uh, pitchers can step off the mound, throw over to a base. Explain that one.
2: That's the disengagement rule, and it's actually wrapped up in the pitch timer rule. In early years of testing the pitch timer in the minor leagues, we discovered that uh, pitchers would just step off the rubber uh, to re- to re- restart the clock, and it created a loophole that essentially eliminated the larger rule itself. You couldn't enforce a better pace when all you had to do was disengage from the rubber. So, in order to close that loophole, pitchers are now limited uh, in the number of disengagements they can with runners on base. So, each plate appearance, while there's a runner on base, you can disengage from the rubber two times with with impunity. So you can throw over twice. You can step off twice. Every time you, you disengage from the rubber counts as, as one disengagement. Once you've thrown over twice or otherwise disengaged twice, you can still throw over a third time, but that third time you have to put the runner out or the consequence will be a balk.
1: That, so the runner gets the base. They, they get to move on. If they're safe, the, the runner, get, yeah, yeah, if, the runner yeah, gets yeah. the
2: base. So mm-hmm. it's another slight shifting of, of the scales in favor of the base runner. Uh, mm-hmm. We think we think it still provides adequate tools for the pitchers to control the running game. Will lead to a, a faster pace and probably an increase in in stolen base activity as well.
1: All right, so I'm a purist and uh, I very much love these changes. But I want to talk about a little bit about you and about the game. First of all, when you show up in these camps as an apostle for these rules changes. Do people look at you and say, okay, Dr. Frankenstein, you created the monster, you're Mr. Analytics, you're the guy who promoted a lot of the changes in the game that you're now trying to correct against? We talked about this a little bit at the beginning. Mm-hmm. What are those conversations
0: like?
2: <laughs> you know, guilty is charged. You know, I think the, the role of the general manager is lends itself to thinking about Every single thing you can do to squeeze out, you know, one more win for your team. It's it's a really competitive uh, environment in 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 Major League Baseball, and it's and it's a close it's a closed system, right? It's a zero sum game. If you want to win three more games, you have to take those wins away somehow from the other twenty nine teams. So you don't have time to sit back and think about the aesthetic value of the game or even the entertainment value of the game. You're just trying to. To, you know, put your players in position to 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 eke out a few more runs, prevent a few more runs, and, and win, win those all-important games. When I was a general manager, I was lucky enough to be on some early versions of the competition committee where we talked about, you know, the way the game was evolving and, and certain changes to the game. And I really enjoyed that role and gave it a lot of thought. We just weren't in a position as an industry to put those changes into play. And, and as a general manager, I didn't have the time or the energy you know, to to take away from trying to eke out those few more wins for the Red Sox or the Cubs and and, and to think about the big picture.
1: You basically had competing interests there. If you think you're better and I don't I don't mean this in a negative way, but if you think you're better at gaming the system by taking advantage of, you know, little insights that your data analytics people come up with and so on, your job kind of entails, yeah, I'm going to do that. Let's do that. Sure. But
2: if the rules and the playing environment change, that's just a disruption. And it gives organizations that are insightful and resourceful and creative new opportunities to game a new system. So
1: your old manager, Joe Madden, who with you won a, a World Series, you know, he's been somewhat critical of overweening front office people, telling managers, what to do, and obviously he was a guy who embraced data analytics. He did it in Tampa, he did it in Chicago. But he said there, ha- in a sense, he was making the same point you're making, which is there has to be some spontaneity, there has to be some you know, appreciation of the aesthetics of the game. Was his critique fair?
2: I think elements of the critique were fair for sure. I think it's, it's Joe has always has strong opinions about the game, and they're, they're always rooted in sort of a love of the game and a, and a love. Of his experience coming up in the game as a scout and player development, so that he, he speaks from that perspective, and it's, it's very legitimate and makes a lot of strong arguments. I think there's a broader picture of what's going on around Major League Baseball, some of the innovations that go on front front offices sort of the way the modern game works that that uh, explain a lot of the the, the, the sort of shifting dynamics with you know in clubhouses and on the field actually at dinner with joe um about a week ago in spring training we had a great time talking about that he's actually um a big fan of some of the rule changes others not so much but really really loves what he's seeing when he when he watches spring training games now with with how the work, athleticism is being brought back into the game at the pace of the game so I don't. I would never speak speak for Joe or 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 Joe.
1: Joe speaks pretty well. for He speaks for himself. very
2: well for himself. But yeah. I, I think I think that'll be a good test if Joe comes out to a big league game this year and watches. I would bet you that uh, he likes the way the game is being played because of some of these rule changes better than than what we saw last year.
1: And it, let's talk about the game itself. You know, we call it the national pastime, and in a sense, that describes an element of baseball. That may be out of sync with the sort of the thing we talked about earlier the the pace of a, of modern society when I always say to um, I mean my wife uh, Susan we met playing basketball and she loves basketball but she doesn't like baseball because of the pace and the of the game. And I would say to her, you know, you go to a hockey game, a football game, a basketball game. But when you go to a baseball game, you say, I'm going to the ballpark. It's a different experience. And part of it is you're sitting outside, you're with friends, you can watch the game intensely and still talk. And, you know, these interludes provide that opportunity. And it really is a pastime. And the question is whether it's past its time. I mean mm-hmm. whether or not it it is consonant with whether it's consistent with the kind of expectations, entertainment expectations that people have from sports and other things today in the in the you know, in the video age. Yeah. It's a great
2: question. I I certainly do not think baseball is past its time. I do think a- Two and a half hour version of baseball might mesh better with modern sensibilities, and maybe might bring Susan back to the to the ballpark a little bit more than you know than the three and a half uh, hour version of. Gonna try,
1: I'm going to try and drag her there with my grandkids this week, so we'll test. That'll it be
2: another good test if Joe Madden and Susan both uh, <laughs> like the game. We, we know we've inched closer to the best version of baseball, but no, I think there's a balance to be had, and that's. That's what we hope these rule changes accomplish in restoring Mm -hmm. the beautiful pace and flow of the game and more athleticism. Work you can create more action, and we need to have more action to attract the modern fan and less dead time between the action because the patience isn't necessarily there the way it once was. You can have more action, but still retain the unique quality of being able to carry on a conversation during the play and during the course of play and being able to enjoy a, a leisurely day at the ballpark, but still have more action than what a ball and play once every four minutes. And and from what we've seen thus far, I would just encourage everyone listening to turn on a spring training game, head out to the ballpark in April, and we think you'll be reminded of some of the things that made you love the game as as a kid and and you know, the aesthetics of the game, the flow of the game. The ability to see a lot of action and athleticism on display, but still also in, enjoy it with uh, with your friends and family at the ballpark, or watching on TV, or listening on the radio. We think that that's all there and and back in in better balance, and and you know that we, we move slightly closer back to this to this best version of baseball. So we're, we're really excited about it. And of course, look, I said earlier the game is uh, about the players and for the fans. So we think we're delivering a better product for the fans, but we have, I think, the best athletes ever to play the game uh, are currently playing the game. We have an incredibly exciting crop of young players uh, coming up, the next generation of, of baseball stars taking over the game, international players you know from all, all over the world coming to play in Major League Baseball. So you know, the, 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 the most talented players uh, of all time, the best athletes of all time playing this, you know, newer, more action-packed version of, of of the game. It's a really exciting time to to tune in and, and get back in touch with baseball.
1: Let me ask you about yourself. You know, you were a prodigy. You led the Red Sox to the World Series when, what, you were 30 years old? Yeah. When you are GM of the Red Sox, yeah. won more titles there, mm-hmm. came to Chicago. You were in your early 40s when you did that. You were... An iconic figure in Chicago sports for doing that as you were in Boston. Probably you're in the Hall of Fame for what you've accomplished as an executive, and you're still in your 40s. What is your life? Where are you going? You could have run for public office in Chicago and in Illinois. And one, I know people actually talked about that. And I know you have a deep interest in things beyond baseball, in what's going on in society and going on in our politics and so on. You must now that you're, or maybe these rules changes are a big enough distraction that you don't have to think about what it is that you want to do next. But what is it that you want to do next?
2: Well, I'm focused on what I'm doing now, and I'm I'm so lucky uh, to be. You know, two years into a new phase, which is a bit of a pause because I'm no longer working for a club. And when you're, when you're working for a club, it's nonstop, twenty four seven. My wife always used to say, "What do you think? You're a doctor and you're on call twenty four hours a day?" Because that's what it's like when you're when you're a GM or a club president, and you play one hundred and sixty two games in one hundred and eighty three days, plus six seven weeks in spring training, plus a month of postseason, and then you have three months but that's that's called the off season but it's your on season when you're running a team that's when you make trades and sign players and free agents it's hectic and you miss a lot at home and so i'm lucky enough to be on this pause where my sons are 15 and 8 so i'm getting to spend more time with them while they're just young enough to still want to hang out with me a little bit uh-huh. i get this uh incredible seat at the table uh for these rule changes and helping to plot the future of baseball which is something i'm really passionate about. I think we're, we're a better society and a better country when, when baseball has a really prominent role in the fabric of what's going on when it's being discussed at dinner tables. I, so agree. That's, I agree.
1: But what about after the pause?
2: And you know, the other change in sports is it's becoming this really big business. And I also have this role at Arctos Sports Partners, where I'm an operating partner, where institutional capital is coming into sports, sort of transforming the yeah, the ownership side of, 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 of the game, what's going on with franchises and leagues. So that's really interesting to me too. I'm also getting to do more work with the foundation named later, uh, which is mm-hmm. a nonprofit. I started with my brother that supports disadvantaged kids. And then we started this program at the Cubs, which is now expanded called case careers as sports executives, which is a curriculum where we go into inner city schools and Take kids who are interested in sports and show them all the different jobs you can have in sports—from general manager to scout to trainer to data analyst and to marketing to play-by-play announcer—and that that's been terrific to s- see that program expanded. So this pause, I'm getting to do so many things that I'm I, I'm passionate about, and and it doesn't feel like a pause. So it'd be it'd be great to have another chapter in in baseball. You know, some unique challenge um, after working for franchises like the Red Sox and the Cubs and being part of championships that resonated in such a meaningful way for so many people. I'm not just going to go jump at any opportunity. It has to be like a, a really special challenge and something that means a lot to me. So I'm in no rush to find that. I think that'll come along at the right time. In the meantime, just what an honor to be part of this team that's working on improving the game with the players and with the owners and seeing it play out on the field in real time. It's been
1: so much fun. You, you mentioned teams you miss the team you put together in Chicago I'm talking about your management team
2: yeah, absolutely that's our yeah so when players retire, they often talk about you know the, missing the competition and then the camaraderie, and probably more the camaraderie than anything else, and the same exact uh phenomenon is true of of uh front office executives on pause or or in retirement uh, and and I miss. The daily competition and and I'm I'm uber competitive and and so you know the standings are they don't lie so it's, it's a daily referendum just like polling used to be for mm-hmm. you and and then ultimately the results uh, with an election and for us whether you win a championship or not uh, I miss that and then especially miss the camaraderie you've been around the the group we had in Chicago and I was lucky enough to have that and the same thing in Boston where it feels like family you Grinding late nights together, you're making sacrifices, being away from your families. You're coming up with ideas. You're going, you're going through tough times together. You're hopefully celebrating championships together. You're out playing pickup basketball and pickup soccer and, and and just having a great old time together. Uh, you're around each other more than you're around your families a lot of times. So yeah, I absolutely miss that. But I get to, you know, I still the, the my old Red Sox team is like a family. I stay in touch with them all the time, same with Chicago. And this role of Major League Baseball allows me to stay connected with them professionally as well. So, I'm I'm in a great place. I do miss I do miss that, you know, there's nothing like that edge of working for a team and 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 the excitement night in and night out, but I've got the next best thing and and then some. So, I'm really lucky.
1: All right, brother. Well, I'll see you out at the ballpark. Sounds good. Well, I,
2: I await your reports on your experience and then especially Susan's. And, and we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll make tweaks as necessary based on that feedback.
1: I'll have her write a full report. <laughs> Thank Great you. Great to be with you, Theo. You too.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder-Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.